Okay. And some people think, well, that's it. Copied so many times. And each time it was copied, new errors crept in. Uh, and that just means that over time, the, the errors multiplied and multiplied uh, and multiplied until now we have no Bible. Bible Sometimes Christians say things about this issue that also are not entirely reliable. And so I want to start with this quote from someone long ago, from 1790, way back before I was born, and you. Uh, Richard Porson was a famous uh, classicist. So he didn't, he didn't particularly study the New Testament, but he studied classical literature at the University of Cambridge. Very interesting guy. But he says, he does the best service to truth who hinders it from being supported by falsehood. To use a weak argument in behalf of a good cause can only tend to infuse a suspicion of the cause itself into the minds of all who seek the weakness of the argument. Can I put that more simply for you? It doesn't do any good to defend the truth and accuracy of the Bible with untruths and inaccuracies. Would you agree with that? <laughs> okay. So one of the things I want to do this morning is I want to show you why the critics are wrong, and along the way I may also criticize some of the defenders of the Bible as well, because at the end of the day, I think it's important that when we defend the truth of the Bible, we do so with things that are, to the best of our knowledge, true. Okay, let's start here with this question that's on the screen behind us, okay? Let's just start when we think about, we're going to talk in a minute here about what kinds of manuscripts we have in the New Testament, how many there are, uh, we're going to talk about versions, John's talked already about the Greek Septuagint, we'll talk about other languages for the New Testament that we have. Um, but before we do that, I just want to start with a very um, even more basic question. Okay? If it's true the New Testament has just been so corrupted, uh, so many mistakes in the manuscripts and all the rest, that all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies, etc., etc., uh, at one level, you should know that logically that doesn't really matter. That is to say, it doesn't really matter if we have lots of manuscripts that have lots of errors. The question is really... Can we identify the errors and then correct them? Do you see? As long as we can correct them, then it's not that big a deal that some of the manuscripts have errors. What we want to know is, does the Bible that we have now, after scholarly work has been done on it, is it reliable? Do you see the difference? So one way to get at that question, actually, is to start at the very sort of end of the process and say, if you took the edition of the New Testament from which your English Bible is translated from, roughly this one, okay, how many times have the scholars behind that had to just guess. That is, how many times have they had to say no manuscript of the New Testament has the original reading? Do you see the question? Do you understand why I'm asking it? How many times do we just think the original reading has just completely been lost to us and we just have to guess? So guys, let's go to the next slide and we'll see. Well, let's, let's start here. Okay, that's my, that's my son there at the bottom of that picture. Uh, his name is Westcott and I named him after a famous... New Testament scholar from Cambridge. Uh, above him is Hort. That's a painting of Hort. Westcott and Hort were two very famous New Testament scholars, and they produced a very famous edition in the year 1881. Um, people sometimes ask me, why didn't I name my son Hort instead of Westcott? Um, I'm, seriously? Anyways, as if Westcott was not bad enough, right? I mean, anyways. Anyways, here's what Westcott and Hort say. In their very famous edition, they explain it this way. They say, in the New Testament, and they're comparing this to classical literature, so to other ancient documents, things like Herodotus or Homer, famous authors like this, they say, in the New Testament, the abundance, variety, and comparative excellence of the documents confines this task of pure emendation, that is guessing, okay, within so narrow limits that we may leave it out of sight for the present. And then they go on to talk in the rest of their book about how to go to sort through 
the errors that are in the manuscripts DC and to get to the actual original. In other words, they say, the number of places where we actually have to guess is so small that we can just leave it out of sight. We don't really even talk about it at this point in the book. All right, go to the next slide, guys. Now, here's the thing. In their edition, they still thought there were 63 places where the original reading had been lost. Okay? Now, one of the things that they did, because they were uh, conservative in their editorial principles, they didn't actually print those in their main text. They printed them in the footnotes. Okay? But they marked them in a particular way, so it's possible to count them. And then also they discussed them in an appendix, so it's possible to see what they say. But 63 places, they suspected that maybe there was a corruption in the manuscripts that we had, in all the manuscripts that we had, all right, so that they had to guess what the original was. Now, the important thing to note here is that when they wrote this, when they thought this, it was the year 1881. And there were a whole lot of manuscripts of the New Testament that had not yet been discovered. So the question we should ask is, in the intervening time between their day and ours, do scholars still think there are 63 places where we just don't even know what the New Testament writers said and we have to guess? And the answer is, if you look at an edition that was published in 1927, we find 18 places where the editor said, we have to guess, and here's what I think the original is. So we've gone from 63 to 18 in the span of just about 50 years. Fast forward to 2012, the edition that I have my students buy in my Greek class, and we find two, two places. So do you see that? Already in the span of a little over 100 years, because of the discovery of new manuscripts, and the refinement of our processes in studying these manuscripts and sorting out the differences between them, scholars have gone from thinking, in this case of Westcott and Hort, 63 places to two. And one, one edition that was just published in the last few years has zero. Okay? So just to start kind of at the end and ask ourselves, how many times do scholars think they need to guess? How many times do scholars think that we don't have the original text or can't, don't have it in our manuscripts at least? The answer is very few. All right, let's go to the next slide. All right, so with that answer in place already, now I want to walk you through some of the evidence that we do have, okay? What is the evidence that we do have? You can go to the next slide, guys. <clears throat> the first graph I want to show you is a distribution of manuscripts by century, okay? So what this graph does, actually this graph does a few things. I know you probably can't see the tiny little numbers, but you get a sense of the overall, okay? Um, this, this graph shows you the kind of manuscript and the date. So we start at the far left with the first century, we have no first century manuscripts, that is we have no manuscripts from the century in which the New Testament was written. Okay? That's actually, if you know anything about classical literature, that's not surprising at all. There's almost nothing from the ancient world, well, I shouldn't say nothing, there's very little from the ancient world where we have a document from the same century in which it was written in. Most of what we know from the ancient world, we have from manuscripts in, say, the Middle Ages. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? But as you can see, you go through and then you hit a spike around the 12th and 13th century. Now, one way to look at this graph is you can think about this and sort of lay this on top of what we know of church history. Uh, some, in fact, some people think if you see a slight dip between the 7th and 8th century, that's about the time where Islam starts to rise to power. Okay? But then that period in the middle is where, at least in Europe, people start to read Greek again. Remember, for a long time, people in Europe aren't really reading Greek. They're reading what? Latin. Latin is the, Latin is the language of the church for many, many centuries. But then in the Middle Ages, they start to pick up Greek again, and then you see a big spike, 11th, 12th, 13th century, and then you can see a dip again. Notice it goes all the way to the 18th century. <laughs> We've already invented the printing press, and yet some people are still copying manuscripts by hand. 
Uh, you'll still find this in many synagogues today where they prefer to have a handwritten copy of the Torah, of the Mosaic, uh, the five books of Moses, rather than a printed one. Okay? Uh, in fact, there's a few very interesting manuscripts where someone actually copied by hand a printed edition of the New Testament. And they even tried to mimic the typography of it. <laughs> Why would you do that? I have no idea. Um, someone had too much time. That's all I can guess. Okay? All right. One of the things I want to say about this, though, is we do have a lot of manuscripts, but do notice that the majority of them do come from later. Okay? The majority of them do come from later. We'll talk about that. Okay? All right, let's go to the next slide, guys. Uh, here's another way to look at it. Okay? Same essential data. And by the way, some of these numbers are a little bit fungible. It can be hard to keep track of these manuscripts. Occasionally, they go missing. Uh, my own supervisor uh, during my PhD, he had a rule. He used to say the best place to find new biblical manuscripts is not like Indiana Jones style in the desert or hunting through caves. It's actually in old European libraries. <laughs> and that's true. Because if you go to old European libraries, they often don't know what's in their own library. And if you're just willing to go poking around, if they let you, uh, you can often find new uncatalogued manuscripts. But what this does is this, this uh, organizes the amount of manuscripts that we have by content. So on the far left we have the Gospels, in the middle we have Acts and the Catholic letters, that's Catholic letters meaning um, James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, and Jude, okay? And then the Pauline letters, and then Revelation. Notice the vast disparity between the Gospels on the one hand and say Revelation on the other. For the most part, Revelation was copied by itself. So one of the other things this graph does is in green, you can see, um, well, no, I guess I don't have it on this one. In blue are all the manuscripts that have all the books of the New Testament. There's only about 60 of them. So that means all the other copies of Revelation are pretty much just copies of Revelation. Uh, it was almost like many of the people who copied Revelation were like, yeah, we'll copy this but we're going to put it in a separate book and put it on that shelf in the back of the church so that people don't really read this. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. It's not that people didn't think Revelation was Scripture, but almost always, one of the interesting things about these manuscripts is almost always it comes with a commentary, which is not true of most of the other books. You can find copies of the Gospels where it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no commentary, but Revelation almost always is accompanied by at least one commentary, as if to say, you can read this, but you need some help. Okay? Which is not terrible, not terrible, actually. All right, but notice the Gospels. We have tons and tons of copies of the Gospels, okay? Well over 2,000 copies of them. This is just Greek, by the way. This does not include any other language. This is all just Greek. One other point about this that's helpful to remember, and that is for you and I, who have a copy of the Bible, and it's nicely bound. Some of us have it in leather. Some of us have our names even printed on the front of it. Um, and... Many of us were given a Bible as a gift at some point as a child, perhaps, or maybe you were given to it as a church, or maybe you spent five, ten bucks on it. But the point is, Bibles are easy to get, right? Bibles are easy to get. And because Bibles are so easy to get, it can be easy to forget that that's not been true for most of church history. Let me tell you one quick story uh, from when I was um, in school still. One of the things that I've done is I've gone on trips to Europe to photograph and digitize Greek New Testament manuscripts so that scholars can study them uh, and so that people can access them around the world. And one of the places I went was Florence, Italy, where I suffered greatly for the Lord. <laughs> <coughs> uh, 
uh, while I was there. I spent about five weeks there photographing manuscripts in the Medici Library. This is the Medici family that was like financed the Renaissance uh, in Italy. And <clears throat> while we were there, they took us into the old library. We were in sort of the new library, which there was you know, still hundreds of years old. But they took us to the old library where people used to come to read books. And in it were tables on the left and tables on the right. They were kind of like standing desks, actually. But the interesting thing about them was that hanging underneath each of these desks, you had kind of the table part here where you could set the book, was a metal bar that ran across. And then in many cases, there was still a metal chain. Why do you think you'd have a metal chain in a library? Because originally, all the books were chained to the library. Why? Because they were so expensive and so valuable, they didn't want people running off with them, right? There's no late fines or late fees. <laughs> they had to take a more severe route. <laughs> that was physically chaining the books to the desk because books were expensive. Now imagine that you're in, say, let's go before the Middle Ages, and you're, say, the year 400, and your church is lucky enough to have a copy of the Gospels. And you've just started collecting, so let's say you've spent a year saving and collecting money so you can get another book of the Bible or set of the books of the Bible. You have to make a decision, don't you? You have to decide, do we want Acts and the Catholic letters? Do we want Paul's letters or do we want Revelation? Do you see? It's not that you didn't know those other books existed. You certainly did. And maybe you even had one copy in your city or something, but now your church wanted its own copy. You had to save up the money to get it, and you had a decision to make. Okay? I just want to keep that in your mind because it's easy for us to take for granted uh, the fact that Bibles were expensive. All right, next slide. All right, <clears throat> as well as the fact that our manuscripts come from different centuries, and they have different contents. Some of them have the whole New Testament. Some of them just have the Gospels. Some just have Revelation. There's also, you need to keep in mind the fact that among our New Testament manuscripts, they vary widely in size. Okay? So on the left here is a very tiny but important fragment. It happens to be a fragment of Mark's Gospel. And it happens to be the earliest fragment of Mark's Gospel. And it happens to have just been published in the last year. It's from the second or third century. Until this little tiny fragment was published in the last year, our earliest copy of Mark was this one on the right. Well, this is one of our earliest copies, I should say. And this is Codex Sinaiticus, which Dr. Mead has already showed you. But if you, if you look at my picture on the right, you see that little orange box? Now, I didn't take the time to measure this, all right? But that's roughly my guess at the size of the fragment on the left if you were to set it side by side with the one on the right. Do you see that? I just want to give you a sense of how different. The manuscript on the right has both Old and New Testament, as well as some extra interesting books like Shepherd of Hermas that Dr. Mead will talk about in a minute. Okay, well, in about 40 minutes, John, all right? Give me some time, all right. Okay, but do you get a sense of the difference between size? Okay, some of our manuscripts are a little fragments. Now, I didn't tell you the exact numbers. Uh, go back, guys, not, not yet. S save that, don't spoil it. Go back, quick, go back. Nobody read it, nobody read this. <laughs> go back, okay. That's my exciting announcement. Okay. <clears throat> so in total, about how many manuscripts do we have? Of when, we, when we talk just about Greek manuscripts, we have over 5,000. Okay? We have over 5,000. Now, in a minute, we'll compare that to some other ancient authors like Josephus that Dr. Mead already mentioned. Okay? But know that 5,000 is a lot. In fact, as a New Testament scholar, having so many manuscripts of the New Testament is 
both a blessing, because we have so many. It means the original reading is probably in there somewhere at every point. But it's also a what? It's also a curse. It's a lot of work. Although it's job security, so it's also a blessing. Again. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so there's a lot. All right, now you can go to the next slide, guys. The exciting thing is more manuscripts are being discovered even in our own day. Just last month, March 7th, 2019, the same organization that published that little Mark fragment that I just showed you announced that, oh, by the way, because, by the way, that Mark fragment was in the news. It was kind of a big deal. Some of you may have heard of a first century copy of the New Testament. That was it. It turned out not to be first century. Sorry, but still exciting. So anyways, when all that happened, this same organization, that they have a, a library in England, and they had their offices in London, uh, they said, hey, I guess maybe we should go through the rest of our collection and try to see if there's any other New Testament. Now, I just want you to know, this organization has existed since the 19th century, and their collection has been around for over a century. But they're British, so they've taken their time to... <laughs> anyways, sorry, I live in England, I can, I can make that joke. No, no, we don't have any British folk in the room, do we? Okay, good. All right. Is this being broadcast live or anything? Who's live tweeting all this? <laughs> it's not hard to do. Um, anyways, they finally went through, and look what they said. Some 20 New Testament in edita, that is, unedited manuscripts, have been identified. None of them, apparently, earlier than the late 2nd or early 3rd century. There may be more small fragments still unidentified because their identity only emerges from much more detailed study than is feasible when cataloging. Now, you might think, how in the world can they not know? Well, if you go there, where their collection is housed is at Oxford, and there's a library there, and they have one room where most of their material is stored, and I've seen this. They have boxes and boxes of these little papyrus fragments, some of them no smaller or no bigger than a quarter. And they may have a few letters on them. And a lot of times they're dirty because they, they pull them out of the ground. They came from Egypt. Okay? And somebody's got to clean them and then look at the letters and try to think, huh, does anything from the ancient world remind me of this? Do you see? <laughs> It'd be like if I just took you know, a random book off my shelf and tore out a tiny piece to it and gave it to you and said, here, tell me what this is from. Right? Even, if you sp even as you know English, you'd still have a hard time. They're trying to do it in another language, so it takes time. In other words, what they're saying is they've been able to identify 20 just in the last year, and there could be more, all right? With the Septuagint, they found 80 of them. So Dr. Mee's excited about that, okay? Septuagint, that is the Old Testament. So just to give you a sense that we have a lot of material to work with, a lot of information, a lot of data to help us recover the text of the New Testament, and it's growing all the time. So that's exciting. All right, you can go to the next slide, guys. In terms of that, everything we've talked to up to now is just Greek manuscripts. That's all just one language. It's all Greek. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, okay? However, early on, because, the, because Christianity is a missionary movement, it has been from the very beginning, people have always wanted to take the good news of Jesus to other people who haven't heard. One of the things that happened was when they did this, they took their Bibles and they realized, huh, these new Christians need a Bible, and so they translated the New Testament early on into other languages like Syriac and Latin and then eventually Coptic and finally other interesting languages like Old Church Slavonic, which I suspect none of you speak here, Sogdian, okay, and other such interesting languages. If you look at early translations, we have several thousand copies in those languages as well. 
Now, those can be difficult to work with because they're in a different language, and it can be very hard to go from one language and try to figure out what the Greek was behind it. Okay? Like if, if you speak Spanish natively, and I, gave you, and I said I gave you English, and then somebody else translated it into Spanish, and then I took it to you and said, hey, tell me what the English, original English is behind that, you'd have some trouble. You could translate it back into English, but you'd probably end up with different English than, than the original. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, the benefit of the, tra- the early translations is that we usually know roughly when they were made and where they were made. So, for example, Syriac was not translated in France, okay, for example, and Latin mostly was in the West, not in Syria, for example. Okay, but we have thousands of copies of these, thousands of copies of Latin manuscripts, we have hundreds of copies of Syriac manuscripts and hundreds of Coptic, and scholars work with all of those languages to help us try to determine what the original text of the New Testament was. Besides Greek manuscripts, which are the most important, and then early translations, which are the second most important, we also have citations by the church fathers. Because the church fathers, people like St. Augustine, uh, or in Syriac, Ephraim, were quoting the New Testament, and sometimes even writing whole commentaries on them. And when they did, they often quoted the New Testament. So we have thousands and thousands of places where they have also cited the New Testament. And sometimes that can be especially helpful because we know exactly when a church father lived and where. And that can be really valuable information. However, as with translations, there's difficulties in using these sometimes because they didn't always cite them exactly. Sometimes it was just for memory. And in fact, sometimes it can be very frustrating. You read, um, you read some church father, and in this book, he cites it this way, and in this book, he cites it that way. <laughs> Now, I suspect that if I listened to your, your pastor's sermons over several years, I could do the same thing, don't you think? I bet I could find places where he's citing from memory, and he cites a verse one way, one way, and then another time he maybe cites it in something like the King James, even though the other time was something like the ESV, do you see? So there can be difficulties involved. But, again, just to give you a sense that we have these three different types of evidence, Greek manuscripts, early translations, and citations, and this goes back to our quote from Westcott and Hort, where they said... The abundance, the variety, and the comparative excellence of our documents, that is, of our evidence, means that we rarely have to guess at what the New Testament text is. All right, next slide, guys. Now, let's put this in perspective, okay? We said we have over 5,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. And we said the majority of them are later, but we do have some that are quite early. We saw a second, second or third century fragment of Mark. How does that compare to other ancient documents? Well, look at Herodotus' history. Herodotus was a very famous uh, uh, Greek historian. In fact, he's, he's often considered the father of modern history, okay? of Western history, we might say. He wrote his history in about 440 BC, so that's about 440 years before Jesus. Okay? How many manuscripts do we have of that? Only about 50. And the earliest is dated to the first century A.D. Sorry, I should put A.D. up there. So that's about 400 years after he wrote it. Now, if you go into any classics department, say at ASU or the University of Arizona, if you prefer, okay, they will have classes on Herodotus. And they don't necessarily they don't think Herodotus is inspired or inerrant or something like that, of course. But they still think he's generally reliable, and they generally think they know what he wrote, even though they only have about 50 copies. Do you see? Or how about Tacitus? Tacitus is another famous uh, Roman author. He wrote his book, The Annals, in about 30 AD, so now we're closer to the time of the New Testament writers. 
we have, I could only find two manuscripts for him. And the earliest is the 16th century? And yet, classicists still read Tacitus as annals, and they don't say, oh, because we have so few manuscripts and they're so late, we don't know anything about what Tacitus said. No, of course they don't think. Why? Because they know scribes could copy faithfully over centuries. Mark's gospel. Well, let's look at Josephus first, and then we'll look at Mark. Josephus' works, he wrote a number of different works, uh, particularly on the history of the Jewish people. Uh, Dr. Mead already referenced him. He wrote these between 80 and 90, so slightly after most of our New Testament books were written. We have about 130-plus manuscripts for his, and the earliest copy is the 4th century. Now look at Mark's gospel. Written in about 50 AD, we have over 2,000 copies of Mark. That's just in Greek. I'm not even including Latin. I'm not including Syriac or Coptic. And the earliest one I already showed you on the other slide is 2nd or 3rd century. Now here's the point. The point is not to say that simply because we have more copies, Therefore, it's reliable. Because you could have 2,000 bad copies and then it's not very reliable. Do you understand? Mere numbers isn't the point. The point is rather to say that if we think Mark's gospel, that is, if we think the copying of Mark can't be trusted, then why do we think we can know anything about the ancient world? Do you see? Because everything we, or most of what we know about the ancient world comes through authors like Herodotus and Josephus. And everything we have from their pen comes to us through hand copies that were copied and copied and copied. But if we can trust them to tell us about the ancient world, why can't we trust the copies of Mark to tell us about Jesus? Do you see the point there? Okay, it's a comparison. All right, next slide. So here are two scholars. The one is a Christian, New Testament, and classicist. And the second one, I have no idea if he's a Christian, but he's a classicist. F.F. Bruce says, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Do you see? In other words, what F.F. F. Bruce is saying is we cannot approach the New Testament documents with a kind of double standard. If we're going to be suspicious of them, then we need to be far, far more suspicious of everything else from the ancient world because our evidence for the New Testament is so much better. And here's Giorgio Pasquale, a very famous, now realize when I say famous, okay? I don't mean like Beyonce famous, okay? <laughs> I mean like nerd famous, okay? And in his case, I mean like nerd of the nerds famous. Like I'd never heard of him until I did my PhD, okay? So famous. He says, no other Greek text is handed down so richly and credibly as the New Testament. Here's a classicist. His expertise was what we're talking about today, was working with classical authors to try to determine the original text of what they wrote. And when he comes to look at the New Testament, he says, look, as a classicist, I can tell you the New Testament is far on far better footing than the classical literature. All right, next slide. Now, let's look more closely then at how manuscripts were copied because the reality is uh, scribes were not perfect. All right, so next slide, guys. Here is Bart Ehrman again directly. That's cool. Uh, this is from his New Testament introduction, which I think may be used at ASU in their introductory classes. And one of the things he says there is, in the earliest centuries, the vast majority of copies of the New Testament books were not trained scribes. The striking and disappointing fact is that our earliest manuscripts of the New Testament have far more mistakes and differences in them than our later ones. The earlier we go in the history of copying these texts, the less skilled and the attentive the scribes appear to have been. Now, this is a common tactic by people who are skeptical about the New Testament. Because they look at the, something like the slide I showed you earlier, where I showed you that we have tons of manuscripts, and they say, ah, but do you see where they spike? They spike in the 11th and 12th century. 
who cares about all those manuscripts because early on, that's when the scribes were worst. Scribes only got better later in Christianity's history. So sure, the later copies are good copies, but what are they good copies of? They're good copies of bad copies. You see that? And so what they want to do is say, the earlier we go, the worse scribes got. All right, next slide. To which I want to ask, why isn't it the other way around? If I were to say to you, this is true, by the way, LeBron James is a worse basketball player than Michael Jordan. Thank you. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. <laughs> I've done my work for today. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, there's this heated debate that happens, right? Is, is LeBron James better or is Michael Jordan? I was born in 1985, so obviously Michael Jordan is better. Okay? There's no contest. But let me ask you, if the Phoenix Suns were looking to get either of these players, and we can even say Michael Jordan in his current state, don't you think the Phoenix, don't you think the Phoenix Suns would be like, we'll be happy to take either one, right? Because neither one of them is a bad basketball player. So when someone like Bart Ehrman says the earlier cop copyists were worse than the later ones, I want to say, why not flip it around and say it the other way, the later copiers were better and that both the early and later scribes were actually pretty good. It is true, I think there's some truth that the later copies were better. They were often doing it in monasteries and they had the luxury of that was the only job that they did, for example. But that doesn't mean that the early copies were bad. Just because LeBron James is objectively a worse basketball player than Michael Jordan does not mean he is a bad basketball player. Are you with me on that? Okay, so whenever you see somebody doing a comparative argument, you need to ask yourself the question, compared to what? and have they stacked the deck. So let's look at an example. It is certainly true that scribes made mistakes. Um, how many of you are fans of the Jack Reacher series and would be willing to admit it? Do you know what I'm talking about, the Jack Reacher series? A couple, we got a couple, all right. A couple of you are very unashamed of that. A couple of you should be more ashamed of that. But anyways, um, <clears throat> in the Jack Reacher series, there's one book in particular where there's an Anglican priest um, who is traveling with, with Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher's this kind of tough guy, right? Okay. The Anglican priest is traveling. They're actually, of all places, they're going to Yuma. I don't know why, but they're going to Yuma, Arizona. And the Anglican priest gives Jack Reacher kind of a Sunday school lesson on the book of Revelation. And here's how he describes it. He says, most of the original of Revelation is lost, of course. It was written in ancient Hebrew or Aramaic. By the way, that's not true. Okay. It's written in Greek. And, <laughs> This is fiction. All right, it is fiction. And copied by hand many times, and then translated into Koine Greek. Not true. It was written in Greek. And copied by hand many times, and then translated into Latin. That's true. And copied by hand many times, and then translated into Elizabethan English, and printed. Now listen to what he says next. With opportunities for error and confusion at every single stage. He says, now it reads like a bad acid trip. I suspect it always did. Now, I want to say that he is right. Well, partly right. Most, most of that is wrong. Most of that's completely wrong. Okay? Uh, but that one part, with opportunity for error and confusion at every single stage, I want to emphasize that that is true. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to go home today and try to copy the book of Revelation by hand, and then when you finish, do the whole thing. Don't cheat. Don't do like one verse and be like, I'm great. No. Do the whole thing. And then compare it to your original and see if you made any mistakes. 
And I bet you'll find that you did. Because every time you're copying by hand, think about what's involved in copying. You have your original here, the one you're copying from. You're making the copy here. And every time you're going from this one to read a bit, and then you're going over here, and you're writing a bit, and then you're going back to read a bit, and write a bit, read a bit. And every time you do that, your eyes are moving back and forth. Your mind is going from one thing to the other. Your pen is going from one place to the other. And there are opportunities for, with every single word to make a mistake. That's true. In fact, some of the most interesting uh, mistakes we have in our manuscripts, um, a guy that I did my PhD with, he studied one particular manuscript, the, one of the earliest copies of Revelation, and one of the places he found that scribes make mistakes are precisely at points where they had to re-ink their pen. Now again, we take this for granted because we either don't use a pen, we type everything, or we don't have to re-ink our pens. But ancient scribes did. And every time they did, that meant, meant their eye moved from, one, from the manuscript to their ink, well, and then back to the manuscript, and he found a number of places where you could correlate very closely places where the scribe had re-inked his pen and then gone on to make a mistake. So I want to say with this Anglican priest that it's true that opportunities for error and confusion did come at each stage of the copying process. However, I want to add to that and say, also at each stage there were opportunities to correct mistakes. And so that's what I want to show you up here on the screen. I assume that most of you can't read this, but this is the beginning of Mark's gospel in a medieval manuscript. This happens to be a photo I took with my iPhone, which is why it's not great quality. But this is a manuscript that is in Ferrara, Italy. And it happens to be a complete copy of the New Testament, so again, fairly rare, one of those 60 copies. And here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, I want you to notice something in the text and in the margin. And I've circled it. Do you see that little kind of straight line, vertical line with two ticks at the top and the bottom? Almost looks like an I that's been cut off, capital I. Do you see that on the left? And then do you see that same symbol in the text? Okay. What's interesting about this particular manuscript is that when I look, went to look at it, almost every page of this manuscript had something like this written in the margin. And what I realized as I went through the manuscript and worked through it, the day I was at the library, was that these were places where the scribe had left something out and then gone back and fixed it. And you may wonder, well, how would you leave so much stuff? And there were hundreds of these. This was not a great scribe, okay? <laughs> Some were better than others, it's true, okay? Uh, this one was not particularly great, but he was good enough to know that he needed to correct himself. Do you see that? And in this particular case, you probably can't tell exactly, I don't have a pointer, but the word right before that little symbol in the text is like a U. You see it has a line over it, it looks like an X-U. Okay, that's the word for Christ with a line over it. And if you look at the word out in the margin, the first letter of that looks like a U with a line going down. That's the word for son. And if you look at the letter at the end of that little marginal note, what letter is it? It's a U. In other words, the letter right before the part he left out is a U, and the last letter of the part in the margin is a U. So remember what a scribe is doing. He's going from this manuscript to this manuscript. He's going back and forth. And oftentimes what happens, one of the most common types of errors that we find in our manuscripts is what we call an eye skip, where the eye skips from the same letter that's on the end of this word and also on the end of this word later in the sentence, and as you're going back and forth, you copy this letter U, and then you copy it over here, and then you come back to the letter U, but you come back to the wrong one. And you accidentally leave out everything in between. Do you see that? It's an honest mistake. 
And that's what you find all through this manuscript. I found that about half of the mistakes that he made where he left things out by accident could easily be explained by that same principle, by the same letter shared at the end of two words, and he just left out what's in between. Okay? So yes, it's true that opportunities existed at each stage of copying for confusion and mistake, but there were also opportunities for correction as well. And that's what our scribes did. All right, next slide, guys. Now, if that's one way that scribes made mistakes, how many mistakes do we have in our manuscripts? The short answer is nobody knows, because as I said, we have so many manuscripts. Most people don't want to spend their life or their career going through and counting differences between them. <laughs> most of what, what most of us want to do is identify the manuscripts that are the most valuable ones and work with those ones. So there's, there, there are literally thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament that have never or only a, or have received only a little bit of study. So if any of you are enterprising out there and interested in a career in textual criticism, let me know. I have some jobs for you, okay? How many variants are there? Let's go to the next slide, guys. I have estimated that there are about a half a million differences in our manuscripts. About a half a million. It is an estimate, and that does not include things like spelling mistakes, some of the kind that John was addressing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. About a half a million. Now, to put that in pers some perspective, there are only about 138,000 words in the New Testament. So 500 million variants for 138,000 words sounds like a whole lot. And let me tell you, it is a lot if you're in my line of work, <laughs> where you, we have to care about many of them. Okay. However, I want to ask the question, how many of them does somebody who's not in my line of work need to care about? Because, see, my line of work is to compare manuscripts to each other and to study them and to write academic articles on them and try to relate them to each other in particular. And for that, actually, the differences are really valuable for the kind of work I do. But for most of us who just want to know what the Bible says, right, understand it and then obey it, we don't necessarily need to know all the simple mistakes that scribes make. So I have what I call the mom test, okay? Because we can ask this question, how many of these variants are really important? And so I asked the mom test, are they important for me as a scholar? That's one question, but are they important for my mom? Do you understand the difference between these two things? My mom, although I try sometimes to tell her, does not need to know all the things I need to know about manuscripts, right? She probably knows more than most moms at this point, but, okay. <clears throat> Let's look at just John 18, okay, to give, us, to give us a sense. John 18 is one of the few places in the New Testament where we actually, somebody has actually taken a huge majority of the manuscripts that we have and compared all of them. Now notice, nobody's done that for all of John's gospel because it would just be too much work. But somebody did bother to do that work for one chapter of John. And they compared about 1,600 Greek manuscripts for that one chapter. And when they did, then I went through after them and I counted all the places there was a different reading between the manuscripts. And I counted about 3,000 of them. Okay. Now, John 18 only has about 800 words in it, so again, we have a lot more variants than we have words. But the question I want to ask is, how many of them pass the mom test? That is, how many of them are actually variants that maybe affect the meaning? Or how many of them are variants that really we need to take seriously, and how many of them are really just obvious scribal mistakes, like I kind of just showed you in the manuscript, do you see? Okay. Well, first thing we can say is 45% of them are complete nonsense. That is to say, it's kind of like when I send emails a lot, I do this all the time. I want to say the, and I spell it T-E-H. Have you done this? I hate that mistake. and I do it all the time. 
Now, if I sent that email to you and you saw T-E-H, would you go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what he means. <laughs> of course not. You know exactly what I meant. Do you see? The very mistake itself allows you to understand what I meant to write. About 45% of those 3,000 variants are of that nature. They're obvious mistakes. And in fact, the majority of those are only found in one manuscript. Do you know why they're only found in one manuscript? Because nobody, nobody copied them. You could correct them. They're such obvious mistakes that the next guy, the next scribe who comes along can easily fix them. If I wrote you an email and I spelled the, T-E-H, and then I asked you to make a copy of it, couldn't you fix that for me without even asking me? Of course, you wouldn't need to talk to me. You could just know. Well, of course he meant the. Okay, so there's those kind of mistakes, almost half of them. All right? Now, I want to put it even in a further perspective. Consider again with me that John 18 has 800 words. Now, if you multiply that by 1,600 manuscripts, remember, every time a scribe copied a word, there was at least some opportunity for him to make a mistake because copying is hard. If you multiply 800 words by 1,600 manuscripts, that means scribes copied a total of 1.3 million words, give or take a few. Okay, Are you with me? That's a lot of words. <laughs> That's a lot of copying. Now put that number in perspective to 3,000. Does that seem like that much? If every single word had the potential for a new error, and in fact we only have 3,000 out of 1.3 million times that a word was copied, that's not actually that many, is it? So actually, our scribes overall, when you put it in that perspective, were really quite good. Now, let's go further. Because I have an edition of the New Testament that I make my students buy in my Greek classes. And the question is, how many of those 3,000 variants make it into their edition, the one that, that I want my students to use for their classes and to write their papers based on? The answer is it only has 154. Out of some 3,000 variants, only 154 make it into edition that's designed for academics to use. We haven't, we're not even close to the mom test yet, are we? And we've already reduced it to 154. There's another edition of the New Testament that's designed specifically for Bible translators. And one of the things in that edition that it does is it tries to reduce the total variance just to the number that might affect a Bible translation. Okay? Are you with me? Do you know how many that one has in John 18? Ten. Ten. We're still not at the mom test, because my mom doesn't read Greek, okay? Ten variants, all right? Ten. I have two very good commentaries on John on my shelf, okay? The kind of commentaries that your pastor might use in prepping a sermon. How many variants do those commentaries discuss? How many do they think are really worth a preacher's time? One of them has three, the other has eight. And most of those discussions happen in footnotes, which is kind of sad to me as a textual critic, but that's okay, all right? How about your English translations? How many of these 3,000 variants did the translators working on them say, this is important enough that like the variant in, say, the David and Goliath story that John mentioned, how many make it into your Bible translation? I checked the ESV, the NIV, the NRSV, and if you don't know, the Net Bible is one that has tons and tons of footnotes. It's kind of Bible where it's like three-fourths of the page's footnotes and then a little bit of Bible text. You know how many they, those translations discuss in total? Zero. Zero. Not a single footnote for John 18 for over 3,000 variants. Now we have finally passed the mom test. So the question you should always ask when somebody tells you about how many variants there are in the New Testament manuscripts is how many of them matter? And the question is for a scholar, for somebody like me, 
All of them matter. <laughs> this is what I do for a living. I want to know about all of them. I want to study them and see what they can teach me about how scribes did their work, how they failed to do their work sometimes, how manuscripts relate to each other, which manuscripts are the best as the result. You can see, I want maximal data. I want to know as much as I can. That's what I do. But my mom doesn't need all that. She wants to know which ones really affect the translation and which ones are really hard to decide. And when we get to that level of how many matter, the answer, in John 18 at least, is none. Not one. So the answer is, are there lots of variants? Of course there are. Of course. Why are there so many? Because we have so many manuscripts. Every time a manuscript was copied, it did present the opportunity to create a new variant. And if you have 16,000 of them, of course you're going to have a lot of variants, right? But the question isn't how many variants exist. The question is how many of them are really serious that we need to pay attention to. And in my estimate, the answer is about 1% or less. About 1% or less of the total number of variants that exist are really the kind that are important. Just to give you, oh, go to the next slide, guys. Just to give it in a graph form, you probably can't see the numbers. Um, <clears throat> the, the total there, that's the total number of variants for each of these chapters, John 18, Philemon, and Jude. This is just, these just happen to be places where we have data available. Okay? The dark green, that's again, that's the total number of variants. The little black at the bottom that you can barely see, that's how many make it into that edition of the New Testament that I told you is designed specifically for translators. Okay? So for John 18, it has 10 variants. For Philemon, there's 16, and for Jude, there's 47. The ones that are the most important are locked away and hidden so nobody can find them. No. Where are they? In your footnote in your Bible. All of the most important ones that affect interpretation and that can be really tricky for scholars like me to decide between, they're already there. They're in your footnote. You didn't even know. But they're there. All right, next slide. Finally, the last question I want to address is this one. Is the Christian faith affected by these? Because even 1% of a number like 500,000 is still quite a lot. So I want to give you one example. Next slide, guys. Here's an example of a variant that is difficult to decide. Okay? In Paul's speech at Pisidian Antioch, he says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to someone by raising Jesus. Okay? Now, how many of you that are Christians would say the resurrection is kind of an important part of Christianity? Yes, you'd agree with me. All right, good. <clears throat> now, in terms of who God has fulfilled this promise of the resurrection to, it's either us, their children, that is the father's children, our children, or us, the children. Now, A and C are pretty much mean the same thing, right? The problem is that C is not actually found in any manuscripts. It's one of those conjectures. It's one of those two conjectures. The B one is probably the most difficult one because we would expect Paul to say that God has fulfilled the promise to us, the children of the fathers, right? Not to our children. And the only issue here is that A is the one that's found in the most number of manuscripts, but B is found in the earliest and best manuscripts. Now, here's my question to you. Does this in some way affect the meaning of what Paul says? I think the answer is yes. The choice between A and B affects the meaning a little bit. Does it affect the significance of the resurrection? Of course not. Does it change whether or not the resurrection happened? In other words, is it like, if we pick B, I'm not sure Jesus was raised from the dead. Of course not, right? So understand that sometimes difficult decisions that scholars have to make have zero effect on our theology. In fact, I think it's safe to say 
that no variant changes Christian doctrine. It's not to say that no variant has to do with Christian doctrine. Some of them do, but none of them change Christian doctrine. It's not like, well, if I pick this manuscript over here, all of a sudden I become a Buddhist. No. All of our manuscripts still present the same essential message, the same Jesus, and the same doctrinal points. By the way, this is something even Bart Ehrman is happy to agree with. Uh, next slide. What time do I need to end? Probably like 10 minutes ago. Was I supposed to stop at 10.45? I was, wasn't I? Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, let's go to, go for like four slides, guys. Yeah, stop there. All right. We'll close with this slide, okay? Uh, we'll end with Johann Albrecht Bengel, one of my um, favorite New Testament scholars. Here's what he says, because here's the deal. Why does somebody like me spend my career doing this if most of the variants aren't relevant to my mother? You see, they don't pass the mom test. Why bother? And here's my answer to you. God's testimony concerning his son, Jesus Christ, is truly abundant and worthy of our respect. The main thrust of what God wants us to learn never hangs on one single particle or word. The faith of the saints accordingly rests on sure and true foundations. But in the same way that a grain of gold, no matter how small, is nonetheless gold, so the smallest portion of the word which comes from the mouth of God is divine. For this reason, whoever holds in reverence whatever comes from the mouth of God will be bound to seek out the most accurate reading of the New Testament scripture as well. Why do I care about a variant like Acts 13.33? If the resurrection is unaffected, and the answer is because I want to know what has God said. Will the decision change my faith? Of course not. Not the essentials, not the most important parts of it. But I still want to know what God has said. And so that is why textual criticism is necessary. Guys, if you want to go ahead to the last slide, and then we'll take questions. What questions do you have before Dr. Mead talks to you again about canon? 